0: First, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch with Gen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code gen 30 Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Mm-hmm. A writer and filmmaker based in Los Angeles, today's guest, Duncan Birmingham, was an executive producer and screenwriter for IFC's Marin and also served as a co-executive producer and writer on the star series Blunt Talk as well. Additionally, Duncan's short films have premiered at such festivals as Sundance and AFI, and his screenplay Swingles, which was bought by Paramount, was also on the blacklist. And recently, his lively, irreverent short story collection, The Cult in My Garage, was in 2021, published by Modlin House. And in other exciting news, he just wrapped his first feature-length film as a writer-director, who invited them, starring Ryan Hansen, Melissa Tang, Timothy Granaderos, and Perry Matfield. Duncan, it is so great to meet you and have you here today. How are you doing, and how is the new year of twenty twenty
1: two shaping up for you so far? Um, I'm doing well today. I can't say uh yeah, the new year's been a little shaky, a little rocky, but I think that's you know the same yeah. for everyone but yeah. uh i was uh yeah, I was happy to uh have an excuse to rewatch uh some of these movies. And um, yeah, I'm just happy to be here and was uh, yeah, super excited to get the movie in the can. We're still in, in, in post on it, but um, it was a great, a great experience. We shot it this fall.
0: That is wonderful. Yes. Congratulations on all of your well-deserved success. For those listening who might not be aware, what can you tell us about your terrific, offbeat, very colorful, surprising, and funny short story collection, The Cult in My Garage, and the new film as well?
1: Um, Well, The Cult in My Garage is is my first book. I've written short stories for years. And um, just since my early 20s, would send them out to literary magazines and, um, yeah, kind of put together uh, enough of them that I really felt like there was a collection there. And they had a seemed to have a a theme, then ended up furiously rewriting them um, to kind of update them, make them feel a little more current. Um, although I guess most of them were written in the last three to four years, so I guess they, they were already. Yeah. 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 Okay. One, one is written during the early, early days of the pandemic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was really excited and have had a great reaction from people, um, uh, who've read the book, not that there have been like tons and tons, but the people who have read (laughs) it, have got a good, really good, uh, reaction from them. I just got a, uh, phone call um, from some people that put on a, a reading series at the Getty Museum out here in LA, and they uh, pick a few short stories and have actors perform them. And I was super excited that they were gonna do the titular story in the Cult in My Garage, oh, the wow. Cult in My Garage, yes. um, uh, with some actors. So that was super fun. And so uh, cool. Congrats. yeah, yeah, so it's available. And I think, you know, most bookstores, if you're out here in LA, uh, Skylight Books and Stories, uh, are selling it. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, at your, at your at your local indie bookshop, if it's cool. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, you can order it from the publisher, Modlin House.
0: Okay, perfect. One of the reasons I am so thrilled to have you here is because not only do we share a lot of similar taste in entertainment, but especially because we're both huge fans of Hal Ashby, That iconoclastic filmmaker who, for whatever reason, isn't as well known or doesn't have the same level of name recognition as other directors in the new Hollywood era, like De Palma, Scorsese, Coppola, Bogdanovich... Lucas, or Spielberg, yet whose incredible seven-film run in the 1970s produced some of the greatest masterpieces of the decade. An Oscar-winning editor of films like In the Heat of the Night and The Thomas Crown Affair for his best friend and collaborator, director Norman Jewison, after leaving his unhappy home in Ogden, Utah, Hal Ashby hitchhiked to Los Angeles at the tender age of 18, Working his way up the Hollywood ladder from the very bottom rung, Hal first became a script copier, then an apprentice and associate editor who, along with his mentor and supervisor Robert Swink, cut his teeth, helping to cut movies like The Big Country and The Children's Hour for William Wyler. On his path to eventually direct, Hal took the lessons he learned from all to heart Known as one of the most democratic of the new Hollywood directors who believed filmmaking was a truly collaborative endeavor, Ashby was an empathetic humanist who was fascinated by people and relationships in his studies of class, race, gender, ageism, society, disability, justice, and culture. Ashby crafted a filmography that's as diverse as it is heavily reflective of both its creator and the time period. Obviously, there are several different directions we could have gone in for this episode, and we'll go deeper into the five movies we selected of Harold and Mud, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Coming Home and Being There in a Moment. But before we do that, I would love to know your overall thoughts on Ashby when you first became a fan or got into his work, and why you thought he would be such a vital figure to discuss.
1: Sure, sure. Sure. Um... I guess I feel like I almost uh, uh, loved his movies even before I knew they were Hal Ashby movies, yeah. which speaks to your uh, point about him maybe not being uh, as big a name as a as a Scorsese or a, a De Palma yes. with a, kind of this, you know, uh, instantly recognizable uh, signature style. And I, I think part of mm-hmm. that is also his, his career, as I'm sure we'll get to, didn't have that kind of. Uh, big second act in the 80s yeah, uh, you're right um that that those directors were able to uh transition into um but but that just makes me love him more because he's he's so purely in, in my mind the quintessential 70s director for that reason like he just yes. had this this hot streak of amazing movies um, before his career uh, kind of hit a, an, a, an unfortunate uh, speed bump and, and uh, wasn't as, as successful or memorable in the, in the 80s. But, you know, as a kid, I, uh, I loved Harold and Maude. I had a Last Detail poster. Now, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that was more because uh, the story didn't have a One flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest poster, and I was such a Nicholson fan. It, you know, it took me a while to warm up to The Last Detail, and now it's one of Ashley my favorites. Ashley was
0: supposed to direct Cuckoo's Nest, so it's perfect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think later he really came on my radar when I read the um, uh, really that that juicy Peter uh, Biskin book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Such a good one. Everybody comes off like such a, an a-hole. Like William yes. Friedkin is from hell. Scorsese's creepy. De Palma's awful. Yes. <laughs> Stephen Spielberg's kind of so creepy. So
0: many drugs, chicks. So many Everything. drugs.
1: Yeah. Everyone's a, a terror. And Hal Ashby is 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 uh, is portrayed <laughs> as this you know pot smoking counterculture yeah. kind of sweetheart that uh, everybody loved and, and eulogized so lovingly at his wedding. And I, I I think as someone who at the time I read it wanted to be a filmmaker. And uh, maybe doesn't have uh, the 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 uh, <laughs> I don't know t- that the temperament that a lot of f- f- filmmakers I read about have the, the fact that that this guy who seemed kind of like. A, uh, a little gentle and, and a little s- sweet uh, was so beloved and ended up, you know, the proof is in the pudding ended up making these great movies uh, was very interesting to me that he had a different uh, uh, persona and way of going about directing. So I, I, that made a big impression on me and made my kind of uh, uh, maybe perk up when I put together that, Oh, he, he did all these movies that I saw and loved might not have really uh, put that together before. And, and since then I've, I've loved reading about him You know, there was a, a wonderful doc that came out a year, a couple of years ago that's on Canopy. And they're, um, oh, so uh, good, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I know you have it too. The uh, biography, and I just read about him, uh, recently. in, in Matthew Specter has this awesome book, Always Crashing in the Same Car, that has a chapter, uh, uh kind of comparing and contrasting uh, Hal Ashby and Michael, uh, Samino's careers a little oh, bit. Wow. Um, so yeah, just been a big, big fan, uh, most recently for years. And I, I also have kind of, uh, uh, recently keep hearing directors that are as you know different as Wes Anderson, Brett Ratner, and Steven Soderbergh, uh, citing oh, him as a him. huge influence, yeah. um, over and over again. The last detail I, I, I see popping up as, as a certain director's favorite film. So, so yeah, um, he just feels like that, that, like you said, that kind of quintessential 70s director, counterculture, idiosyncratic, uh, humanistic, or just a couple of the the words that I. I think of when I think of him and those films are just so handmade um, like so many of the films of, of that generation, but in particular those, and that's just so anathema to, to movies now that they feel like they stand out uh, even more.
0: Perfect. Yes. And I love that you said he is synonymous with the seventies because in film school, I did an independent study where I self-designed all of my curriculum. And so for the 1970s, I focused exclusively, I mean, I did other uh, films, but I focused exclusively on Ashby. And then for the sixties, I chose John Cassavetes. And so, oh, wow. I was, yeah. So I thought that was kind of perfect. I'm like, wow, he, he's sort of reaching right in there and grabbing my thesis from like, you know, 18 years ago or something, but that was awesome. Yes. And I think when you're talking about, um, easy riders, raging bulls in this era, he kind of reminds me too, of Robert Altman, maybe because they had these sort of journeyman careers of working, um, you know, different fields before they became filmmakers. They're both older. Um, Ashby was born in, I don't know if it was 1930, but it was definitely the early Depression era. He had like 50 or 60 jobs, he said, before he was like 20 years old. He already had two wives by the time he was 21. Uh, by the time wow. he became a filmmaker in 1970, when he stepped in for Jewison, um, he was just wrapping up uh, his fifth marriage. He didn't get married again after that. And he said that for the past 10 years working as an editor, he had worked 17 hour days, seven days a week for 10 years and was kind of like burned out at that point. He said, I went through, I wrecked three marriages. I was exhausted and I needed a change. And he just always wanted to be a director. And thank goodness he used all of the skills that he had developed and became a damn good one. You also said that, you know, he's somebody you don't really attribute his movies to initially when you see all these films. Um, when I was doing some research on him, Nicholson had a really good quote. He said he has such a light touch that some people who have worked with him aren't even sure he's directed the picture. I thought that oh, was I kind of perfect. That. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just such a good choice for us to focus on, I think, today.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think I also think yeah. After five marriages, you may as well just hang it up. Hang it I, up. I don't, I don't think, anything think so. gonna happen Yeah. Six. <laughs> um, but I think Altman is is yeah really interesting uh, uh, comp. Um, there's 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 a kind of a, a freewheeling shaggy dogness and an anti-establishment. Um,
0: yeah, they were hippies before hippies was movies. a thing. Yep.
1: Yes. Yeah, there're a lot yes. of Ashby quotes. Uh uh there's there's one in particular that they highlight in the documentary about him talking about how lucky he is being born in this country, being born white, being born uh, uh male, male. Yeah. and uh, you're like, oh, "Wow, how how Ashby was uh yeah, woke woke long before uh it was uh it was cool."
0: Yes, he definitely was. Yep. Absolutely. Well, following his directorial debut, filling in for an overscheduled Norman Jewison in the Oscar nominated social satire The Landlord in 1970, the director's next two films were even more daring. In the first, made only a year later, and already covered once on this podcast in season two, episode 55 with William Boyle, Bud Court stars as a macabre, death obsessed, bored 19 year old whose hobbies include trying to shock his narcissistic, wealthy, waspish mother with his increasingly elaborate faux suicides. And his other hobby is attending funerals. Jolted out of his stupor by the joie de vivre of another frequent funeral attendee, an almost 80-year-old manic pixie dream girl played by Ruth Gordon, <laughs> the two find their friendship rapidly turning into love in the now cult favorite Black comedy Harold and Maude, which Inventively written by Colin Higgins is fueled by the infectious songs of Cat Stevens. A dour yet surprisingly sunny story about the importance of human connection, which is one of Ashby's favorite themes. The film was followed up with another one that startled Hollywood studio execs via the Robert Towne-scripted adaptation of the Daryl Ponixon novel *The Last Detail*, with Jack Nicholson, Otis Young, and Randy Quaid. In the film, two Navy lifers, played by Nicholson and Young, are assigned chaser duty to take the young, naive, 18-year-old kleptomaniac sailor, played by Quaid, to naval prison to serve eight years for a minor offense of attempting to steal $40. At first, they assume that they'll just bring him directly to prison and then have a blowout shore leave level weekend with the money they were paid to carry out the job. However, the longer the two spend with Quaid, the more they begin to question not only the justice of the sentence, but what exactly they're doing with their lives as well. Alarming the studio due to its incessant use of a few chosen expletives and one hilarious request made before the film was shot, Ashby and Town were asked if derivations of the words fuck and or motherfuck could only be used 10 times instead of 80 allegedly because it seemed more powerful or that was their reasoning. Although also the Department of Defense had recently said that they would not be involved or endorse the film at all because as they put it in the Navy of the early 70s, sailors no longer swore. Fortunately, Town, Ashby, Nicholson and all balked at this request because they knew that's how these guys really talked. Obviously, there's a lot to consider with these movies, both deserve their own episodes really but what can you tell me about how you see Harold and Maud in the last detail
1: uh yeah certainly both uh uh could warrant their own episodes I mean talk about and I I love the the landlord as well uh but oh, I thought yes. for, for mm-hmm. our discussion it'd be fun to talk about kind of his 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 hot streak even though Harold yeah. and Maude wasn't was not a hit was a was a uh, a, a bit of a bomb, and there's mm-hmm. a, one famous review. Like, I can't remember who the reviewer was who said it was about as funny as a, an orphanage on fire, but oh, really? uh, but then it you know it it quickly became a, um, uh, a cult classic, um, yes. and it does feel like I, I think Harold and Maude and being there, uh, if they're not my favorites, they they certainly feel like the most asp- Ashby-ish of. Ashby movies. So it's it's fun that they we're talking do. about them as yeah. bookends. Um, they have a lot to compare and contrast. But for um, Harold and Maude and, and The Last Detail, I mean, talk about two movies really stretching the boundaries of what could be considered uh, a, <laughs> a comedy. Yeah. Um, and both just have this, this really... Um, Sad, you know, uh, uh, melancholic, um, uh, bittersweet uh, humor that I really, really love. Um, yes, Her- Harold and Maude. I guess I, I say it feels like the most Ashby's of, of Ashby movies because while his other films, you know, you could imagine um, what the you know different d- directors, what the Sidney Pollock version of Coming Home would be, or or, yeah. or something like that. But it's it's hard to imagine anyone doing <laughs> Harold and Maude and and it not being a disaster uh i mean it's such yes. a, a a tiny little bullseye to hit in terms of the subject matter um not just the the romance uh with the you know the decades in between the, the licorice pizza yeah, yeah. of that generation the <laughs> the uh, uh uh older woman younger man romance but also such a big part of the movie is his performative suicides mm-hmm. which could um made even more interesting by the by the fact of Ashby's biography that his father committed suicide when he was but, twelve. yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 much in there that just seems like it it shouldn't work, but somehow it it does. um, and I think it's a testament to obviously, you know, his his directing that really just uh, career defining performances he pulls out of uh, Bud Court and Ruth Gordon. Uh, Cat Stevens music since Ashby was a, a such a huge audiophile the way he layers that in and pick those songs um and the way it's it's cut uh it's 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 just um so unique and um you know I don't know how many times I've I've seen it. Um, and when you're watching it, 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 it's just such a special movie. So, so I love it. I, I mean, there, it's, it's amazing that he's able to make that Bud Court character. And th- this was my thought when I just watched it recently, I was like, wow, I never thought about it before. Bud Court is this, you know, rich kid, you know, his, his father's passed away, but he seemingly has everything he, he could possibly yeah. want and not for a second in ever watching it. Am I, am I ever not on board with this character? Um, something about it, you just like you just roll with it. You're like this guy's alienated. I want him to be happy. Um, you 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 never for a second think he's uh, you know no. spoiled brat or somehow you're just on board.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's such perfect casting again with Altman because um, he had just done Brewster McCloud uh, with Altman, so Bud Cort kind of already had this sort of offbeat thing that he was uh, synonymous with, and this was perfect uh, as a follow up. I think it is one of the most Ashby, a lot of his movies seem to end on cliffs or by water. Mm -hmm. Uh, Characters either live, die or just drift off or wander away or, um, one enters a store like we don't follow them fully to their destination they kind of just wander and cliffs and water seem to be a big motif that he goes back to again and again and you know this one also you mentioned the music like he couldn't have made I don't think coming home without making this film like it kind of helped establish sort of what he was interested in it is very synonymous with him but it's also Colin Higgins and his intense respect for Higgins, who was writing this as his master's thesis when he was a student at, I believe it was UCLA. And he was working as a pool boy for a producer at the time. And uh, he had to drive their daughter to and from somewhere. And he would just tell the story. And she was so taken in by it. She's like, you got to show my mom. And so he showed the mom and then led to the dad. And so uh, Higgins did some test like shots to direct this and uh, they did not fly with Robert Evans at all. <laughs> Ashby didn't want to do it. He actually told him like, you should just let Colin Higgins direct. Like I'm not going to do it. And Higgins respected him enough. He said, no, you're good. You, you understand the material, go for it. He said, but I'm going to make you a producer. And then you're going to be with me every step of the way. And I think that really, it just, those two work so well together. Yeah.
1: Oh, I love that. Cause that just, um, just feels like how I imagine that that yeah. kind of uh, old school seventies mentorship Hollywood w- would work with the right people. Someone yeah. like Ashby seemed to have such a big heart and, and, uh, and that documentary that I love so much. Uh, and as you mentioned, Norman Jewison was really his mentor and uh, I love him yes. kind of uh, uh, oh,
0: reading those letters Ben Foster was reading the letters oh out loud. God. oh so moving yeah
1: yeah yeah a real uh, a real sweetheart and seemed to be so generous with his actors and his cast and his crew and that's why he, he seemed especially in the 70s period to just work with all the best cinematographers all the best writers all the best actors uh people just really uh dug him um, yeah
0: he kind of reminds me of a contemporary anyway um like Stephen Frears how nobody really talks about Frears as much as they should mm. because Ashby, uh, his movies in the 70s alone, uh, earned 11 Oscar nominations for his actors, just the actors. And um, that's amazing. And it reminds me of Stephen Frears, who way back in the day I was making a joke like his next movie, you're going to get four new nominations pretty much because, yeah, that's his thing, too. And his movies don't seem to get attributed to him as well. And I think it's because he's generous and collaborates just very well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Though, that in, invisible uh, fingerprint. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, force his authorship on his no. movies. Yeah. um Although I always find it funny that uh, in 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 this round of of, of re-watches, I had never. I I knew he was in a couple of his movies. I didn't realize the level of Hitchcock oh, yes. cameos he does in his movies, which I find so funny. He's got such yeah. a distinctive look; it totally fits.
0: He's got mm-hmm. like a, a
1: great, you know, uh, uh, a great a uh, uh, face that. That could only be of that time in the '70s. His his tall, lanky, silver-haired hippie look. Um, yes. but I Not that he kind of appears in all his movies. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and and the the other thing that uh, for Harold and Maude is in terms of uh, the Ashby's of Ashby movies is it kind of sets the template for we you know talked about he how we you know dabbles in um, very different type of movies that might not have that signature, uh, uh, look or feel that uh, Scorsese or, or Coppola has, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but very much so thematically there, there is that signature that, yes. that outsider character, uh, trapped in a, uh, a certain establishment, uh, that threatens to, you know, uh, uh, uh crush their individuality. And in, in this, yeah. it's, it's that, uh, you know, that rich kid, bud cord who looks like his, uh, his family is it comes from uh, some kind of old, old world money, and he's trying to represented by you have all the 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 Ashby strawmen, the religion, um, the military, police, yeah. the police, all those conventions. Everybody's kind of circling around Budcourt's world trying to get him to conform. And uh, and he's struggling to get out and and uh and does in a way, uh, through his romance with uh I love your description of her as the ultimate uh, manic pixie <laughs> dream girl, uh uh does through. Uh, his romance with uh, with Ruth Gordon.
0: Yeah, and she's just so magical in the movie. When I was talking to William Boyle, we were kind of focusing on the fact that most directors or and most screenwriters would have given her like a speech, um, and instead, in a moment, we just see uh, the numbers on her arm, and we know she was a survivor, and it's just far more affecting. And just defines her and in such a way and does it really delicately. I think most people would have oversold that moment. I love it. I also just think she brings such an infectious, fun energy. I love her singing the Cat Stevens song, her speech, you know, L I V E, where she kind of becomes a cheerleader for a moment. It's super cute. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I would say Ashby never seems to oversell moments. His movies never seem to teeter over into, um, anything treacly or Saturn and it's just yeah. uh, it's amazingly they, they tiptoe right up to the edge
0: yeah um, his, his point on that is he liked to say that if he liked a character he was hard on them and if he didn't like a character he was kind to them so that way he thought it would temper it out a little bit so he wasn't forcing it too much
1: oh interesting nice yeah. um well, yeah, and, and uh, speaking of not ever getting Treacly or Saturn, um, uh, you know, the last detail. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So excited to rewatch this. Me, uh, too. I'm glad you it. <laughs> a amazing balancing act. I, I had read at the time Nicholson said it was his favorite performance. Now, who knows if he thought the same a few years later. I think it's my favorite Nicholson performance. It's almost like uh the template for the the classic jack uh archetypical yes. performance like yeah. i i was struck this time watching it how much i was like oh this is like nicholson's cuckoo's nest warm-up you know he's the fun guy who's gonna put his arm around the virginous younger man and take him to a uh you the know or house yep. <laughs> and uh it's it's, it's you know we've got so much uh so much of the dna uh for the cuckoo's nest, uh, 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 mcmurphy uh uh billy bibbit relationship um but yeah what I, I i again it's uh ashby kind of telling a story uh about a guy the the uh character is you know this navy lifer but He's a military man, but he still considers himself a you know a badass. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the nickname he keeps telling yeah. everybody that's his nickname, and he's a he's a total rebel. But uh, even his individuality is 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 no match for the 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 military institution that ultimately grinds him down, and yes. uh, and he's got to do this 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 really dirty deed of bringing Randy Quaid to the military prison for a crime that's so heartbreakingly insignificant.
0: Oh my goodness. I know. Yeah. It just kills you right away within the first few minutes. But what I love is you think, you know, where it's going or what it's, what it's going to say. And it never, again, there's no speechifying or anything. And I think that's brilliant. He loved working with Nicholson. I think that was one of his favorite collaborators. He said that every one of his movies, he could see Nicholson playing the lead and Jack was the first person he always had in mind. Like every single one of the movies, he, oh, um, Nicholson was supposed to play. um. I think it was the paraplegic character in coming home or they talked about mm-hmm. it. Yep. He wanted Jack to play everybody. And he said of all the actors he'd worked with, he's like, Jack probably could. And he said, he's one of those people who gets um, called like, you know, showy or whatever he said, but when you watch him and he was comparing the last detail with the role in the King of Marvin gardens, where he's more like withdrawn kind of an anti Nicholson uh, performance or your stereotypical Jack. Um, he said, you never know what he's going to do next. Like, you know, some people you see them and you think, well, I can you know, like a chess, do it four moves ahead. And you know, where this one is going or where the, en- where he's going to go by the end of this speech with Jack, you have no idea. Like, it's just, he's very honest and very accessible. And he said, it just makes it exciting to watch. I think the last detail is a perfect uh, embodiment of that. It's an incredible performance. I remember liking this film, but not loving it when I first saw it. And it was probably Me too. when I was, yeah, preparing to write like my paper for school. I think was the first time, or maybe I watched it in the '90s with my dad or something. But watching it this time, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Yeah, this is definitely one of my new favorite Ashby's. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I love it. It's um. It's uh, like you said, in in terms of uh, underplaying things and not giving uh, the characters, (laughs) you know, big speeches to shine a light on what's going on. I mean, the level of understatement in The Last Detail is ridiculous. I mean, it's the the scene, the big climactic scene where they bring Randy Quaid to the military prison. There's not even a a shot of him and a reaction shot of, of, of of uh, uh, of Nicholson and Oda Young, who plays his uh, his, uh, his his partner, it, it is it's it's so shocking it like takes your breath away because you're expecting something. It the whole movie it, it has just been leading up to this heartbreaking moment, and then it just makes it so sad that it's over in a second. He's just without even seeing his face, he's just whisked up the stairs, and you're like, is that the prison up there? Oh my god! It all looks so yeah, terrible. Yeah,
0: there's no cut back or anything like, yeah, there's absolutely no reaction shot. It kind of reminded me like maybe 25th hour took a little bit of something Mm -hmm. from uh, when they fight in the park on the day that he wanted to have a cookout or something. I thought, ah, you know, a little bit of 25th hour, but this one doesn't make it quite as dramatic at the end. Again, it's just, they're part of this bureaucracy. Like they, you know, you haven't left yet because of the stupid mix up with the signature, the paper or whatever it was And yeah, it's just, it's a good way to play against your expectations, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's really um, brave filmmaking that, that, yeah. that, you know, that that movie was watched by whatever test audience, whatever producers, I'm sure there's gotta be some pushback being like, hold it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's going to be no little moment. Randy Quaid's not going to look back. Um, I'm, I'm just imagining an Ashby, you know, stuck to his guns. That's a little story I've made up in my mind. Uh, um, and then I can tell you, that, Oh please, even uh, better.
0: the test screening for that, first of all, for Harold and Maude, again, like they were so scared. Um, I guess Robert um, Evans loved the movie when he saw it. Ashby's people cut together a trailer, and it was the scene where uh, Bud Court like passionately kisses Ruth Gordon and it, you know, flashed, you know, Harold and Maud. And uh, <laughs> Evans like basically went through the roof. He said, No, the only market where they actually legitimately use something like that or told you what the movie was about in Baltimore. And it was a huge hit there. Uh, The rest of America posters just had the names. There were no pictures or anything. Um, Some of the trailers were extremely vague. Like you had no idea what this movie was and it bombed. And then for the last detail, the studio was really upset about, um, yeah, I think no big lesson or something at the end. And also just the language. They were just appalled. And he said, let's do one test screening. And they actually chose, I, th- I think it was smart where they chose, they went with San Francisco and it just was a hit. The first uh, test screening and then Par- I think it was Paramount, maybe it's Columbia. It's like, nope, we're keeping it and left them alone. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. People, uh, I, I feel like uh, when I was talking about directors uh, citing Ashby as a a reference. Yeah. I, I read some interview where Brett Ratner cited, cited it as his favorite movie, almost made me not like the movie anymore. I
0: was like, I <laughs> oh,
1: love this movie. And then I've heard Soderbergh talking about it in terms of, I think it's the Detroit scenes in Out of Sight, where he's like, there's a, there's just a, a, a chilliness, a coldness to it where you can feel them. That yeah. Every street they're walking down, they're clutching their jackets. And that a the barbecue they have in Boston, like the the saddest little barbecue saddest ever, barbecue where they're ever. eating <laughs> hot dogs with no buns over an open flame and just f- freezing. Um, uh, you you can really just feel it; it's it's visceral. You can feel it in your bones, and 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 that's the feeling I, I kind of go away from from that movie. It's it's uh it 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 really sends a a chill through you.
0: Oh, I love that about Soderbergh. I'm a huge Soderbergh fan. Uh, I think he was talking about when he did the. Um, Detroit scenes because he always is is a big or was a big color palette guy just with the camera, um, you know, to tell you where you were like traffic kind of used three different very distinctly, um, you know, different color palettes. And he did something similar like Miami was super bright. And then he shot the footage uh, because he was doing his own shooting um, in Detroit with what he called like gunmetal gray. And, you know, just lifeless and the scenes of them walking outside and it being freezing and then hearing you say that and thinking about uh, the last detail. Absolutely. You can just feel it. Yeah. There's no, um, you know, pretty overview. There isn't a bunch of high key lighting or anything going on in these uh, scenes at all. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. The only only moment where you might get a little warmth is uh, at the at the which is a classic Ashby trope is at the uh, little hippie party. Um, where our characters are mostly uh, outsiders. And there's that wonderful moment where where maybe Randy Quaid is, you think he might even escape. uh, And it's classic Ashby that um, uh, one of the counterculture hippies is, is uh, encouraging him to run. And and boy, you really wish, you really wish he would. I
0: know. Yeah. I haven't read the book. Uh, I think he might get away at the end, but what I guess what happened to the two lifers at the end of the book is they decided that they were going to go AWOL or something. And um, Ashby was like, there's no way that these guys would ever do that. Like they're in the system. They, they might not like it, but this is all they know. Um, so I'm glad they kept that for sure.
1: Me too. And I have also not seen the Richard Link Linkletter uh, somewhat I sequel, did, The Last Flag. Okay.
0: I did. You know, I didn't even put it together that that was a sequel until after I'd seen it like a year or so later. Um, It was okay-ish. It was not great, I will say. And I I love like later, but no, that was not such a good picture. Though I do think I remember Steve Carell was pretty good. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. I'll put it on my list, but not very high up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't just immediately go, well, this is, yeah. (laughs) You're like, what did she make me watch? No. And although Harold and Maude had been playing steadily in some cities as a growing word of mouth, Art theater mainstay, even if it wasn't what anyone would call a success necessarily. And The Last Detail received Oscar nominations for Nicholson, Quaid, and Town and scored good critical notices. It wasn't until our next two films that Hal Ashby had actual box office hits. Skipping over the sprawling, beautifully crafted Woody Guthrie biopic Bound for Glory, which was sandwiched between the two films. With its 1976 release, we have Shampoo in 1975 and Coming Home from 1978. Two star-anchored, developed, and driven projects in Shampoo, which amusingly enough and long before the Broadway musical was actually conceived as hair, screenwriters of Towne first and Warren Beatty second crafted a tapestry of Beverly Hills narcissism run amok on the eve of the election of President Nixon in 1968, following around an ambitious, serially cheating hairdresser, hoping to open his own salon played by Baby and based on John Peters and Jay Sebring. We watch as he gets himself tangled in a mess of knotted bedsheets with his girlfriend, Goldie Hawn. His ex-lover, Julie Christie, turned the mistress of a powerful man and the wife and daughter of that very same guy embodied by uh, Jack Warner, plus Lee Grant as the wife and Carrie Fisher as the daughter. At the end of the film, when pressed for why he does what he does and or also what happened, by the very matter-of-fact and ready-to-move-on actress played by Goldie Hahn. Beatty comes clean with the famous admission that, let's face it, he fucked them all. Tailor-made by Beatty and to Beatty. And indeed, it was Beatty who was smart enough to counteract the vacuous narcissism of this group by setting it in that pivotal election, which got America President Nixon, who seven years later and 10 days after Shampoo's release, would resign his office. The next film we're tackling is another one, questioning the decisions made by not just elected officials but voters as well via my personal favorite Ashby movie, Coming Home. A passion project of Jane Fonda during her years of advocacy and research into the war in Vietnam, the American military and what we were doing both abroad as well as at home. The film began its earliest period of development when she met the veteran-turned-paraplegic activist behind Born on the Fourth of July, Ron Kovic, finding its way in and out of the hands of three main writers, yet also being so still in progress while they shot it that material was still being either written or made up on the fly while they shot, including gradually deciding how it should end while filming was already well underway. Coming Home is a film that puts the authenticity of its people and situations first by preferring to shoot with real disabled vets and include long stretches of scenes, including its immediately gripping humanistic beginning, as well as John Voight's mesmerizing final speech that was largely improvised. One of the first American films to deal with the realities of Vietnam and Coming Home actually came out the same year as The Deer Hunter. It's also one of the first to focus on the lives of women who stay behind and get involved in living life, helping out and fighting the war on the home front by helping out as Jane Fonda's character does in a vet's hospital, married to Bruce Dern's career Marine, but finding herself falling for an old high school classmate, the charismatic, sexy, paraplegic uh, played by John Voight. The film garnered Oscars for Fonda, Voight and its original screenplay, a moving love story, but one that prioritizes and respects the humanity of all of its characters. One of the most memorable and effective things about Ashby's coming home is again, just like Harold and Maude, but even more extensively in this case, is how he lets near wall-to-wall popular music drive and comment on the action throughout. There's so much to discuss here, so I think I'll stop Duncan, and let you take it away
1: um well that was great no great uh great setting the table yeah so so interesting that that um uh these two movies both on kind of larger canvas portraits representing uh, america at a time both set in 1968 uh yeah, like period perfect. pieces but just a few years later um both anchored by big stars with big personalities who who generated the material and uh in in Dealt with uh, with Ashby in, in two very different um, ways. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would say uh, you know shampoo uh, again just to kind of fit it into that Ashby you know uh, theme. Uh, the the Beatty uh, Beatty's George hairdresser. You know he wants to he wants to join the upper class and and be successful with his own shop, but he can't snuff his own. Uh, individuality in a way yeah. in, in this case represented by his like t- totally overactive uh, uh libido <laughs> I know um, and it, it's funny it, this was the f- you know as, as much as the the character is um is uh is related to those uh as you said Peters and, and Sebring and, and Warren Beatty uh, such a famous ladies man I didn't yeah. realize until recently what a ladies man that Ashby was, besides his, oh, his yeah. five marriages, just a, a, a real uh, uh ladies man who moved from one, one relationship to another. So, so interesting that his his um mm-hmm. you know uh character also informed uh, uh Beatty's George a little bit. Um and uh, you know, this I, this is such a, a, a great film. What was interesting in, in reading about it to me was that uh it's the the one movie I think we're discussing where Ashby was um Uh, steamrolled a a little bit a little bit yeah by by Beatty which which seems characteristic of how Beatty works and Robert Mm -hmm. Town, who who um Ashby had worked with before on Last Detail and Ashby was was kind of uh uh, teamed up on a little bit by them and uh uh put in the corner with with Warren doing a a little bit of shadow directing it sounds like and he was not uh very happy
0: yeah yeah he was kind of a tiebreaker between the two yeah
1: yeah uh, so in watching the film, you know that said the film is so great, it's it's hard for me to imagine it being better. It's 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 hard to kind of uh, delineate like well what what would Ashby if he had had his, um, you know Druthers, what would he have done different? I'm yeah. I'm not too sure because it it certainly has the the ashby fingerprints of 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 that that outsider story uh this this undercurrent of of nixon conservatism and and a few pot shots at nixon that that seemed to also run through his movies and uh and this um this this uh push and pull between in this case the uh stuffy conservative um world of kind of uh the upper echelons of of uh of high society in la um uh, contrasted against the, the, uh, the, uh, more freewheeling counterculture. And you, you see that in, in, in the, you know, uh, kind of set piece, uh, scenes of the the fundraiser that then uh, segues into the counterculture party.
0: Yes. Uh, Yeah. Quite a contrast there. Um, another thing, it kind of helps set the table for, um, being there a little bit with the Nixon mm -hmm. being on the Television, kind of in the background. There were all these political things going on, but yeah, we'd see little clips of Nixon uh, or little news clips just in the background. And of course, television plays a much bigger role in being there. I think also Warren Beatty is somebody who was very, very close with Hal Ashby. He was the tiebreaker, he was kind of the mediator. I guess it had taken town a couple of years to write the script. Like he came up with the idea. And then uh, Beatty's like, yeah, that's great. And Beatty hated what he wrote and then wrote his own version. And then I guess they said over, I don't know, a week or so in a hotel room, it was the three of them. I can't imagine like how much cocaine, like how are they standing up at the (laughs) end of this? But um, they just put the two scrubs together and it was kind of hell sort of having to figure out no, you know, these major personalities kind of playing the mediator Uh, between the two. And on the set, um, he did say, because people would ask him, like, did Warren kind of shadow direct or was he the guy really behind this? And he said, if Warren would have crossed a line with me and taken over my job, I would have just walked off the set. So he was very proud of what he did and loved working with Warren. But I can't imagine it was probably easy. He said that they stuck closer to the script on this film than he did in any of the other films. Um, because of town and because of how tightly written it was and maybe because he had that much of a hand in uh, writing the screenplay or working on the screenplay. I think he was uncredited though. Um, You know, just from the get go with this one, I love um, with Warren's character and kind of the way that names are used. Again, it has a tie with being there and the way they use character names. Um, In this one, you have a Jackie and a Jill. So like a Jack and a Jill, and then he's George Roundy because he's kind of going around and around in circles with all of these women. So there's some fun stuff going on with the names in the movie. Oh, the that. cast is phenomenal. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. It's I don't think it has, you know, as much substance, obviously, and it's by design. It's not supposed to as the other films. I think uh, the saving grace of the movie was that decision to make it set on that election, because I think without it, we might not be talking about this movie today. I don't think.
1: Uh, I, I agree. I agree. Giving it that kind of a political backdrop yeah. gives it a, a nice context. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say, Oh, it's, it's so interesting to, to hear you say that because it's it, how, how involved in the scripts as Ashby was in all these yeah. proce- processes, all these five movies, um, Maybe a little less with Harold and, and Maude, which seems like that that was kind of delivered and uh, and stuck to. Um, but but you know he's either in the mix on the scripts or he's bringing in his own person, Robert Jones, or or he's combining drafts or they're you know they're the uh, uh, you know shooting before the scripts are even finished and coming up with things on the fly. It's really uh, interesting, and then again speaks to him as. Um, is uh, uh, what a great director and, and, and maestro and, and how, how involved he is in all his movies. But yeah, I, I would say uh, the only thing I would really add about Shampoo is is how much, uh, even though these kind of aren't uh, Ashby's usual characters, these um, kind of uh, uh, upper crust um, characters, there's so much humanity there. You know, the, the, the Jack yeah. Warden character, you expect this guy, the, the cuckolded uh, rich guy, you expect this guy to be such a joke in the beginning with his Caesar haircut and his pot sure. belly. Yeah. And he's almost like, you know, the, 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 second, I mean, he is the second male lead, but almost like this co-lead that, you know, he's, he's really got his own journey and you really uh, feel for him and, and see his mm-hmm. point of view and see Beatty's flaky character through his eyes. Um, so I, I love that. And and there's just in his humor, there's just, uh, you know, no, no cheap shots uh, with these characters.
0: No, I like not at That's all.
1: why his movies are so um. Even though they they are very timely and and feel like they've got their finger on the pulse at this very specific time, um, unlike a lot of uh, other films of the period, they the uh, do not feel dated.
0: No, not at all. And pointing out the big counter culture party and the way that modern filmmakers uh, took something from him. This movie watching at this time, I was remembering that film One Night Stand by Mike Figgis, which I think is a really underrated movie. Oh, yeah. And there's this pivotal scene where everything comes out and it's at a party at the end. And it's because, you know, people get caught cheating, just like in this movie. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if they took something right from shampoo. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to see the way that all these filmmakers, maybe, maybe without thinking, maybe it's subconsciously, but are taking things from these great films by Ashby. Yeah. Oh,
1: I'm 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 sure no his 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 fingerprints seem to be all over uh uh yeah movies of the last 20 years for sure. Yeah. um just the just uh we're just watching Harold and Maud, you get so many uh Rushmore uh yes. and, and Wes Anderson uh 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 flashbacks and vibes for sure. Um yeah. that, that Wes Anderson little, wears on his sleeve. Yeah.
0: Yeah, not, yeah not absolutely. When I was doing the episode with um Bill, we were talking about um I, To me, the ending of the film is one of the best endings, I think, of all time, just the way it's edited. It kind of is a cross cut two moments in time, not too far apart um, as we see him like careening off the cliff or we think he is. And it's cut with the events of the night before. And that kind of reminded me of the way that Wes Anderson used that uh, with Needle in the Hay and the big breakdown scene with uh, Luke Wilson in Royal Tannenbaum. So yeah, I think Wes Anderson uh, was very influenced. Cameron Crowe has openly acknowledged he's on uh, the new Blu-ray along with Larry Karaszewski doing a commentary track, which I haven't heard yet. I'm very excited, but yes. Uh,
1: I have not heard yet, uh, yeah. either, but uh, uh, that is uh, on my list and that's very high up. Yes. Um, yeah. So and, Put that and above then, Last Flag Flying. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes. Way far, far above. Um and then yeah coming home uh also such a, a pleasure to rewatch um uh, Jane Fonda uh, uh seems to be kind of in the um ashby outsider role a little a little bit uh, unconventionally so in 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 that uh you know she she starts off uh in the movie as a a, a military wife who's who's uh, yes. living a conventional life and then becomes uh kind of uh stuck between um Staying married to Bruce Stern, who is who is the uh, at least in the beginning archetypical kind of military, uh, gung ho patriotic guy, and uh, her her new flame, the the John Voight character, who's a, a Vietnam vet who is now soured on the war and has a foot in the counterculture. culture. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, so it, yeah. She was and, um, very conservative at the beginning of the film, kind of that housewife role and the changing gender roles. Uh, Jane Fonda, of course. Was a huge Vietnam activist uh, in the 70s. You know, it's people still bring up uh, Jane for that. But by this time, she really wanted to make a movie that Middle America, is how she put it, would like. She wanted to play something that everybody could relate to. Um, She'd done some artsy movies. I mean, Barbarella, of course, and she'd also done a Godard when she was over in France during those years. Um, and she just thought that she wanted to make a movie about real people and also show the the war from the female's point of view. And I think that was something we hadn't seen before. I mean, Vietnam, we really hadn't addressed. There had been green berets uh, that, you know, flag waiver, uh John Wayne movie. And when Coming Home hit, there were some reviews that called this like the liberal answer to the Green Berets, which Hal <laughs> Ashby got a kick out of. He's like, yeah, like we all sat down and really thought, you know, the Green Berets, we need to make a counter film for that. Not at all. Um, so yeah, it's it's a cool one for Jane in this era. I think it's an important film it kept getting pushed because of all these problems. And also uh, like Jack Nicholson was supposed to be in it. Then he wasn't. Um, John Voight was initially going to play the Marine captain. um, And then he said he would do it, but he really felt like he identified more with Luke. I think he initially came on board. This is my speculation, but because it was supposed to be a film by John Schlesinger, who'd worked with him on Midnight Cowboy. Jane Fonda handpicked him to be the director, but he said, uh, Jane, I'm gay and I'm British. And, you know, (laughs) I think, you know, you don't need any more controversy. So if I take on this movie, like the reviews are just going to be like, what does this gay British guy have to say about anything for America, Vietnam? And so he kind of just stepped back and then um, Ashby stepped in. Fonda has a lot of fond memories making this. They had little, you know, fights, I think, just like, Beatty but she said like Ashby would shoot 30 to 40 takes he'd print them all she's like I have no idea he would just sort of remember everything and then use like a vocal inflection from one with a look from another she said he would wind up shaping these performances we didn't even do or intend Um, so she had a lot of respect for what he did with the film and I think it's very beautiful yeah,
1: me too. Me too. Uh, yeah, I, I read. Um, everything I read was that um, Ashby had a great uh experience making the film. they there, I guess, their big fight. Um, I don't know if you was, was a little, little controversy about the love scene and how that yeah. should be shot. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like for me, my, my favorite parts of this film, um, where it comes alive the, the most are those moments like the opening. Oh my goodness! Uh, where we open on on just uh, a, a, a pool table at uh, the Veterans Hospital, and um, John Boyd is there, but really the scene belongs to the uh, real life uh, veterans, uh, some mm-hmm. of whom are, are paraplegic, and they are improvising and uh, and uh, just you know shooting the shit about the war. Yeah. and it, it's just such a great opening to the movie where there's no artifice; you can't dismiss it. Because what could be more interesting than than being a fly on the wall uh, as these guys kind of uh, lay their hearts on the table and and, and talk about their experience it, it just really um it's it's a, such a great way to open the movie and so i I love that I could even uh, have, have gone for more of that. And it's funny when I read yeah. about the movie, it sounds like those were the the, the most fun scenes to shoot. And, and John mm-hmm. Voigt was energized, uh, by these guys. And, 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 uh, initially, you know, they, they thought they might be a little resistant to Fonda, but she won them over and loved them and Ashby loved them. And, and just was, it was uh, uh really great. And they helped keep the film uh, honest. So, so that scene, and then, uh, uh, I think you mentioned John Voigt's somewhat improvised, uh, scene, uh, uh, a big speech at the end, uh, is so great. And probably yeah. John Boyd's best moment on film and, uh, talk about a, a beautiful use of music and, uh, a beautiful use of cross-cutting to to cut that with the Tim Buckley song and, uh, oh, Bruce Dern's yeah. character. Once I
0: was, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh.
1: yeah. Bruce Dern undressing on the beach and, um, and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, disappearing into the ocean another Hal Ashby, uh, suicide, Yeah, really, uh, really beautiful, really effective, um, just uh, moments that I won't ever forget and and feel really, really earned.
0: Yeah. Dern tells a really funny story about that. He said when, when they finally figured out the ending, he's like, wait a minute. So John gets to give a speech, like Jane says something I just go to the beach, get naked and go in the water. Like (laughs) he he was making light of it, but yeah, no, I think so. And you brought up the the real life vets. I think that is the big strength of the film. Also um, my goodness, the way he uses music in this is just so impressionistic and powerful. Like within the first 15 minutes, you have uh, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel. I can't imagine what <laughs> all of those song rights must have cost. He said, had he had an even bigger budget, his idea was to make it from start to finish music. Like he said, as soon as you saw the logo, he at first envisioned it like you would hear a DJ uh, mentioning a song and then the song was going to start playing or something. And music would pretty much be in the background for the film. He said it was more important for audiences to know where a song started than where mm. it ends. He said, because I feel like when people watch a movie, whether they're conscious of it or not, they drift a little in their mind. And he said, you do that, especially with music. And I feel like, you know, this movie was set in 68. Music of the sixties was super important. It was part of your lives. And so the audience at the time was going to be watching this and then thinking, about where they were maybe when they first got their driver's license and heard that song or took somebody on a date or these big experiences in their own lives. And he thought that that would be a beautiful way to encourage the drift because he said, if you mentally drift for a couple minutes, I designed coming home. So you're not going to miss much. And then hopefully you'll just want to come back and rewatch it uh, over and over again. He said he was a big like early proponent of wanting people to be able to watch his movies in their house. And I I loved that. Like he gave um, his footage on tape to like, he wanted to give it to UCLA, AFI everywhere. So anyone could just walk off the street, go and recut it or practice cutting his movies however they wanted. Um, He was really eager for people to have that universal ability to see these movies in their home. And I think that was, I don't know if it came from maybe this film and disability a little bit, or just wanting to share art or learn the way he did as an editor. But I always think of that, especially
1: with this one. Yeah. yeah. Keeping it accessible. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I think um, it's also interesting to note that that um, there was a great Vanity Fair article written years ago, and this is touched on on Matthew Spector's book too, Just comparing and contrasting since after that John Wayne movie, you know, Hollywood <laughs> stepped away, didn't put out any Vietnam movies and, until you had coming home and deer hunter. I believe deer yeah. hunter bested coming home at the Academy Awards. Best picture. Yep. But, but looking, and I love the deer hunter, but, but looking oh, and back director. Yeah. And, and director, uh, I, I think John Wayne had to hand that, uh, Oh,
0: did he? That, oh, I, I love
1: it. Or, or I'm sorry, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola because oh, he was okay. making Apocalypse Now at the time, so he there might have wow. been a, a, a little, a uh, bit of a weird vibe from him. Um, but but just seeing how they've <laughs> aged uh, in in terms of the Deer Hunter and Michael Cimino's kind of um, <clears throat> more uh, traditional patriotic uh, conservatism. At, at a, for a while, Michael Cimino was uh, saying um, that he uh, he was a Green Beret. Um, and had been in Vietnam. Oh, I um, heard that.
0: Yeah, he was and, and trying had to, to be corrected. <laughs> have that rumor go around. That wasn't true. Yes.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, maybe initially some uh, research hadn't been done, and the whole the whole idea for Deer Hunter had started with this idea of Russian roulette and Russian roulette played in Vegas. So the the whole Russian roulette as a metaphor for the movie, mm-hmm. in, in retrospect, just feels so. Uh, and anyone who who has. There's so many people who've come out uh, who experienced Vietnam and said, this this just doesn't exist. It just Mm -hmm. didn't happen. So in in retrospect, it feels like a very uh, racist, uh, just uh, really dated trope. Um, And and in that way, coming home feels like this more humanistic, uh, realistic uh, viewpoint of of the war. So I I think coming home, at least... my takeaway from having read about the two films feels like it it has kind of survived uh, a a little better uh, than dear. You're right. Yeah.
0: Even at the time in 1980, I remember in Jane Fonda's um, autobiography, she was citing a story um, that the vets were asked like, which film out of all the ones that had come out, do they like the most or feel portrayed vets more most favorably and accurately in coming home was the film. Yeah, and uh, she took a lot of pride in that. And yeah, I mean, I still love uh, Deer Hunter just as a piece of filmmaking, but absolutely, this is the more authentic film. Um, they did have some pushback at the time from, I think, the studio, and they were worried about the reaction with the Brewster character. Originally, it was going to be far darker. Um, I oh think God, he's so dark
1: already. It's hard to imagine.
0: I know it was originally going to be like, he took Jane Fonda's character hostage. And then Luke comes over and is able to talk him down. And then he goes on the freeway and he still has a gun and gets shot dead by the police or something. And they said, we saw too many of those stories in that era on the six o'clock news and didn't mm-hmm. want it to end like that. We wanted to, um, cause by the end you feel bad for, um, like all the characters, of course, there's empathy for all of them, but you feel bad for Dern. He doesn't come off as a one note uh, caricature or anything like that. And also, I think it came a little bit from Voight's research. They said, we don't want to paint all Marines, of course, with you know, one brush and I'm somebody who's related like four Marines. So obviously, yeah, I understand that. But when Voigt was thinking he was going to be playing the Marine captain, he was going around everywhere and talking to people with like a tape recorder running. And he talked to this guy at a diner who was a Marine. And he said, let me ask you, you go over to Vietnam, which I think he had been. And you mm-hmm. come back and you hear that your wife um, had an affair and it was with a paraplegic man. What would you do? And the man just like leveled with them and said, well, I'd kill them both. I would kill her because he's in a chair and would be less dangerous. Like he had this like actual plan. Oh, and um, so that really freaked out uh, Void. of course. They took it and they said they don't want to make it too sensational like that. Um, they wanted to have some humanity. So I think, yeah, there's, there's humanity. Like it isn't all Marines. It's this one man who couldn't take it. Another idea that I actually respond to more, because I think this is believable, sure, but it's also believable, but they just didn't know how to film it, uh, was that his character would decide another way for to check out was he was going to go back to Vietnam. And so he was going to reenlist. And they said, you know, it was kind of anticlimactic, like, how do they show that on the film and make it you know very definitive that he was deciding this and so they went with another one of the water endings of of ashby and i think yeah it's beautiful it's heartbreaking but it's done with respect yeah
1: yeah another uh well all, all that is um so interesting and and yeah testament to i guess what we've been talking about about the hal ashby understated uh touch yeah um, for sure
0: well, in 1973, Peter Sellers gave Hal Ashby a copy of Polish Holocaust survivor turned author Jerzy Kaczynski's satirical 1970 novel Being There, which Sellers hoped to develop into a film project described by Sellers as not exactly political, yet it's hard to see this Washington, D.C. set oddity about a gentle, childlike, enigmatic gardener who becomes the new obsession friend and potential mover and shaker just by the virtue of those he knows to become one of the New Most Powerful People in Town as something of a bit of a warning by Kaczynski, possibly on the dangers of groupthink, the cult of personality, and how quickly someone even someone as simple-minded and vacuous as the seller's lead could find their star rise in contemporary society. Yet, I'm making this seem as heavy or political as like 1984, and it really is the furthest thing from that overall. Going back to the word that seems most associated with this hippie-before-there-were-even-hippies filmmaker, being there is weird. Chance the gardener played by Sellers is a man who lives as much for gardens as he does watching television. Likely unable to read, he's without relations and likely even without an actual professionally conscripted job since no one can even find a record of him being hired in the first place. After the old man whose garden he tends to dies, Sellers Chance is turned out from the house with nowhere to go. After he's hit by a car watching television in the store window, the younger wife of a dying DC politician played by Shirley MacLaine and Melvin Douglas take him home to recover and avoid litigation. And soon chance becomes a dear fixture friend, gardener and more of this house as well. Eventually charming the president who quotes him in a speech By the end of the movie, which contrasts politicians' hopes for his future with a scene where he actually walks on water, we find ourselves questioning the character overall, along with the many facets and meanings of its curious title. A film that's grown on me the more times I've seen it. I wasn't sure what to make of it when I initially saw it. I know it is one of your favorites, so I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on being there.
1: Sure. Well, I I think as I... um touched on at the top of our talk yeah it almost feels like the along with harold and ma the the other most ashby's ashby movie um to put it very uneloquently just in that uh as i'm watching it it's hard to imagine anyone else directing this movie and making it yeah. work another like very tiny little bullseye to hit uh, another uh amazingly uh, uh, a balancing act of of tone um, in, a, in a movie that just kind of wears its uh, its humanity and its warmth uh, on its sleeve. Um, I also like that it's a, the last film we're talking about because it, it very much feels like a, a culmination of uh, of our conversation about Hal Ashby's kind of hot streak. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 it comes at the end of the seventies. This was Hal Ashby's last, um, you know, successful film, like commercially and and critically, but um, it also feels like it kind of combines the smaller, Personal aesthetic of of uh, land, of uh, Harold and Maude and Last Detail with the kind of uh, bigger uh, trying to do a, a real portrait of America of a time bigger canvas bigger cast pictures of, of Shampoo and Coming Home. I mean, it starts out, and uh, you know, you're you're in this in this old townhouse with Peter Sellers for probably a half hour, um, yeah. one or two other characters, and uh, and it, it, you know, it's 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 a very uh, small movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels like, and, 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 and you venture out into the world with Peter Sellers ventures out in the world. And, and only then when he's out on kind of the world stage, does he bump into these, uh, uh, enormous power players, just these, yes. just most uh, 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 plugged in family. And, and, and then he, he kind of steps on to the world stage, uh, mm-hmm. in a way. And so in, in that way, it kind of, I, I think, uh, 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 feels like a culmination of kind of all Ashby's skills representing all these different worlds. And, um, you know, there's just so much social commentary, uh, in here, um, that's trademark Ashby. Yes. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, it, it feels to me almost like a, a perfect film and that it just feels like the film that they wanted to make. I, I read, uh, again, another great ashby collaboration with a cinematographer i read something where caleb dashnell talked about you know they didn't shoot it like a comedy they shot oh. it like a like a drama and mm-hmm. you really feel that and and it's it, it 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 makes everything feel so much more weighted in a way that doesn't feels heavy but also um uh feels like it works i mean this easily could have been like a one joke movie um, and, uh, and, and it's, and it's obviously it's not, um, so no. yeah.
0: yeah, it's a hard tone to get right. And I think when you go in knowing, um, Peter Sellers, um, yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, is this funny? It, it takes a while for you to know exactly what you're watching. He's kind of like this boo Radley, Forrest Gump, Type of character, did very much
1: Forrest Gump before yes, Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. You don't know what to make of it. I love the sequence when he does finally venture out uh, in the world, and you hear the theme from uh, 2001 play as he's walking around. And then when he gets in a little confrontation, he pulls out his um, remote control and tries to click to change the channel because it's just too intense. It's such a great moment. I don't know how anyone like kept a straight face around sellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hard role, I guess, for sellers to play. He starts usually with the voice and he wasn't sure like, where's this guy from? Like, who is he exactly? We don't know. And so it was kind of hard for him to figure out a way to tap into that. Um, Ashby was asked, like, again, why is so much TV in the movie and like we have minutes go by where we see the content of these shows and he's he's like it's it's mostly children's shows and if you watch children's shows they're all about love and accepting people uh of all races and faces and again this kind of goes back to the first movie he made the the landlord at age 40 in 1970 and just how children aren't um taught or they're taught to hate as they get older but when they're younger um they're open to everything or everyone or that's the hope and he said uh, television is so powerful and it can either hurt or help and it just depends and so um this chauncey character is somebody who has no experience with being cynical. He he doesn't really know. Um, what do you make of the ending? I know everyone is going to want us to talk about the ending. I love that McLean's character is named Eve, um, you know, and he's a gardener. Uh, we have the water. I guess that was just something they came up with um again just like the ending of coming home like while they were shooting what if he walks on water and somebody on the crew because he he wanted all of his films um just learning from being his from his editor days was you know everyone say your ideas because you know it's a collaboration so he's like we can't have him walk on water because that's only christ and um you know there was some to and fro and he said but isn't you know, childlike innocence or earnestness is isn't that kind of a pure thing as well. Um, I guess the great moment with the umbrella going in the water was only come up with a few takes in, uh, which you know kind of makes that moment. It's really beautiful. I mean, he yeah. Otherwise, asked, he
1: might be walking on a on a puddle.
0: Exactly. I think that's an important thing for us to see there was um, originally it was supposed to be Eve comes after him in the woods and they like find each other and keep walking. There's another where they drift away, just like uh, a motif of Ashby. He was asked point blank, is there something we're supposed to get from that? And he said, it's, it's really up to you what you're watching and how you process that. And that's kind of the moral of being there. And what makes Chauncey tick, I guess, is what he's watching and if he's processing it, is he on the spectrum? I mean, something's going on, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I love how uh, Chauncey's origin story is is not explained. Um, yeah, the, the clothes that's one of the, from decades. The, the, <laughs> the keys to the movie, yeah. um, for sure. Um, and the ending, uh, I, I think it works so well. I would be hard pressed, or I am hard pressed, to explain what works about it. Um, yeah. Certainly, there. There, I guess there is the the Christ comparison, but. There's just something magical yes. about him as a character that when he's walking on water, I guess as I've watched it, I've never felt like it was, I don't know. I've never felt like it was uh, literal. No, um, no. I, I mean, it's 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 such an iconic moment because that was, I remember as a kid, that was the, you know, that's the poster. Um, yes, and,
0: exactly. And
1: it, it, yeah. it just somehow works and uh, it's a nice little Another reason why I kind of think of it bookended with with Harold and Maude, since that is the only other Ashby movie with little moments of magical realism in it. Yeah, um, that's and, such and a good
0: point. Yeah. yeah,
1: this has that moment. It just feels like it needs that moment of whimsy, and some somehow it worked for me. What what Levity. didn't work for me yes. was was the Peter Sellers outtakes at the end, which I had forgotten I about. I
0: agree with you. Yeah, and I guess Peter
1: Sellers was mad about those too, and they were taken yeah. out of the English version.
0: Okay. Yeah, it really does kind of pull you out. You have this great moment with Sellers on the Water and Life is a State of Mind. I mean, there's a lot of questions also with the title. And you think, you know, he was in one house where an old man passed away, and then he's at another house where somebody is going to pass away. I, you know... I did one and a half years of Catholic school, so I'm not religious by any means. Um, but yeah, that was something at first when watching this. I'm like, is this sort of like, you know, the, the, the one with, death. yeah, with uh, Cary Grant where he's an angel, like what is going on here? I had no idea what to make of it, but yeah, there's, there's so many questions with the character. I think too, there's some great moments of humor with some of the bit players Um, like the black woman who works in the same house as him, sees him on TV and it's like, he doesn't even know how to read. Like all you have to be in America is a white man, which kind of goes back to, um, Ashby's interest in race and equality—a
1: a great um, little moment of yeah social yes, commentary that yes, still feels comment. fresh and earned. And she's really yeah. the only only character besides the Richard uh, Dysart doctor who who sees through Chauncey. Um,
0: I know. Oh, the doctor character is also int- yeah, or uh, the guy in the elevator who cracks up, and then he cracks up again because he's expecting another comment. Right. Like he's a quick witted guy who's gonna you know cut him up every five seconds with jokes. Um, yeah there's so many questions it also it's really funny um, just from a female point of view we have another movie right after coming home where these women are sexually unsatisfied uh, by you know they're powerful or that's the illusion anyway uh, male counterparts so he's He's bringing some questions in. He's very interested in that to begin with. Like, I mean, Shampoo, though, is kind of a come up in son, free love and is free love even free. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to this movie. It's one that I think you do need to see a few times uh, because there's it seems so simple and so straightforward, but I think it's far more complex. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really resonated. I've, I've heard the, you know, the the term Chauncey Gardner has kind of entered the lexicon. I've heard I've heard Joe Biden described as a Chauncey Gardner. I've heard oh, really? uh, Donald Trump <laughs> described as a, a Chauncey Gardner. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, watching it this time and I'm just so I looked up the mansion for the first time in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm like, oh, my God, I have I have to go here. Um, uh yeah, watching it this time, I I, I really thought about. It. I'm like, what what is it about uh, this movie that that does make it work? Because you you are rooting for Chauncey. Um, uh, something about it, I I really feel like that that Melvin Douglas character and and Ashby has said that was such an important character to cast because he wanted someone who who with an inherent goodness yeah. uh, in him and it feels like you know there are other people that that like you say there's it's almost like a a uh, case of groupthink has taken over the world that chauncey mm-hmm. infiltrates and you know the jack warden character can't get him out of his mind as the president and everyone is uh, attributing all this wisdom to his kind of uh simple almost like uh, biblical uh, uh phrases about gardening but the fact that the melvin douglas character is so wise and so smart, oh, and such a so good character, good, and that he believes in Chauncey. Yes, uh, r- really makes you get on on board with that character, even. More. you you want him to live at the estate and and be with eve and like succeed you do not you uh, like don't i'm like oh i don't want chauncey to be found out you want this a uh, illusion to to keep going uh because whatever it is that chauncey represents feels like it is a a, a good thing um for yeah. all the people involved it, um, it
0: makes you think that i mean when you first see it you're waiting for the shoe to drop, like, you know, some big clue is going to come in about this guy's past, or there's going to be some big moment of confrontation, or they're going to frame him for something. And it's completely against that. It's just about human relationships. And like you said, we need the Melvin Douglas character to vouch for this guy um, and to make you think it's okay for him to be there with them. Like he isn't mooching off them. I do like that when the doctor is suspicious so and, great. uh, yeah. And then warms up to him. So it, yeah, it's just really beautiful.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a real warmth there. And it, the Peter Sellers performance is so great because so many times you feel like he's on the cusp of understanding what's happening. You, you know, you really can't, tell it's 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 not like he's just de- dead in the eyes and no. and, and you don't yeah. know what's you know he's not understanding he feels like he's on the cusp and part of the fun of the movie is what what is he getting and what is he not getting mm-hmm. and it's it's so uh heartbreaking when the melvin douglas character ben passes and oh uh, chauncey is has uh, uh uh tears in his eyes and and there's been like a you know a modicum of um uh, of of growth on his part um yeah yeah, so just a, a really uh, beautiful movie, and in fitting with the, the 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 kind of Ashby themes we've talked about. I mean, Ch- uh, Chauncey Gardner's um, you know his his uh, his simple uh, sound bites about gardening almost sound just like uh, hippie speak. Yeah. So he's he's kind of the the outsider coming into this. Um, uh, this old money, powerful uh, corporate Titan world of, of, uh, of power players that's, that's so cold. And, and in many cases, so corrupt besides the the Melvin Douglas character that it feels like his, uh, his more, uh, simple, organic, natural way of viewing things is is like a a salve to all these characters. And and it really gets into the Ashby worldview so well.
0: Yes, it does. And it kind of foreshadows that this era is coming to a close and we're heading into the Reagan years. And um, yeah, yeah, which makes it even more poignant. Um, And of course, Peter Sellers would pass away. They were going to work together again shortly after this. And that fell through, of course, when he passed away. But It's just such a, I mean, Ashby continued to work, but this was definitely the last great masterpiece. And it was a good masterpiece for sellers as well. But obviously we chose to focus on just those 70s years. Do you have any thoughts on his 80s output at all? Or are there any other figures from this new Hollywood era of filmmaking or beyond that you wish people discussed more than they do or you know, if you like Ashby, you might like this director, anything you want to recommend oh, to people?
1: Oh, interesting. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, Alt, Altman does feel like a great comp. I mean, I've been uh kind of getting into Frank and Eleanor Perry's films a little okay. bit, um, yeah. like the, the, the swimmer. And I saw last summer, uh, which is very hard to find at the new Beverly years ago. Uh, cool. that really blew me away. Um, uh, yeah, I would I would just dig in dig into these Hal Ashby movies for sure. Um I haven't explored his 80s work. I've been meaning to watch 8 Million Ways to Die. Um because <laughs> I've heard there's a little and 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 uh, Second Chance Hearts as well. Yeah. Um so, uh, you know, I didn't want to kind of watch second rate Ashby, but you know, now, I'm uh, now I'm, I'm desperate for some Ashby. So I will dig in. I do remember watching sluggers, uh, sluggers wife as a kid and liking it, but I i have heard it's not good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I'll, know.
1: I'll check it out again.
0: It's tough. Um, for my pandemic movie club, um, my buddy, Travis Woods chose that one, uh, 8 million ways to die for us to watch. So we all watched it. It's it's an experience. He's writing a huge essay on it, as only Travis can. So I'm excited to see his take on it. Uh, they fired Ashby on the last day of shooting, kind of took over that movie. Oh, no. What they wound up with uh was not what any of the actors, Jeff Bridges, um, Rosanna Arquette, anybody had in mind, and they've all kind of disowned it, uh, which is very sad. I haven't really watched too much of the 80s stuff either. I wish we would have been able to see a Tootsie by Hal Ashby because he was going to be working on that one. It fell through because Dustin Hoffman hadn't like signed on the line. He had said, you know, I want you to direct this, Hal, but he never really committed to it on paper yet. So they didn't have a quote unquote deal. So Ashby then had to forfeit the like million and a half or whatever that he was going to get for Sootsie and it moved on with Sidney Pollack. But it makes me curious. I started the other night looking to get out with John Voight and Burt Young and Anne Margaret. Kind of crazy. I'm at like a half hour in and uh, then got sleepy. But I do want to go back because it's weird. Um, when I was looking it up, Catherine Stebbins actually described it on Letterboxd as Hal Ashby's Dumb and Dumber, which made me okay. immediately curious. So, yeah, I need to watch the rest of it. I would like to see Secondhand Hearts as well. Uh, But Looking to Get Out has the distinction of again, it's John Voight and the first performance by Angelina Jolie when she's just a little girl. So.
1: Oh, nice. All right. Yeah, I think that might be the first one. uh that I watch and then 8 million ways to die. I mean, just yes. in terms of if you're, you know, listeners are, have seen all these movies and we're looking for something else, maybe in the similar vein, I, I have been uh, recommending, um, uh, uh Jerry, uh, Schatzberg movie, uh, with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino scarecrow, uh, oh, yes. the last uh, year or two, a much, much, uh, a darker, um, uh, doesn't it doesn't have the warmth that, uh, a lot of Ashby has or the humor, but I feel like it's, uh, it's got a kind of a freewheelingness and it is, uh, as seventies as seventies get, um, almost like a, uh, uh, a, 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 a little more of a, a rural town to town, midnight cowboy. So I, I really love uh, recommending that movie and, uh, and there's always something about um, Bob Raffleson's Five Easy Pieces. That oh, I feel like Raffleson uh, and, and Ashby share a little bit of the of the same uh, DNA, I think. Um, and that's one of my you know top top ten of all time. So so that's another one that might maybe uh, scratch that itch if everyone's yes. seen all these films.
0: Oh, those are great recommendations. Well, Duncan, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I monopolized your whole afternoon. Oh my god, this was, it was a my lot pleasure. Of fun.
1: My yeah. pleasure. Thanks for asking me. This was great. Of course.
0: I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show.